This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to Reporters Without Orders. Order, order. Hello and welcome to Reporters Without Orders, a podcast where we talk about what made news, what didn't and some things that absolutely shouldn't have. I'm your host Snigdha and with me today are two News Laundry reporters, Supriti and Ayush. Hi guys. Hi. Hello. How have you been? I've been fine, particularly... Actually, nothing going on uh, that's interesting in my life. So, Ayush, come on, what are you saying? <laughs> yeah. So much is going on. <laughs> yeah, but I'm dead to everything, you know. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. Especially after watching that uh, UP, I mean, the Sudarshan TV <laughs> oh, yeah. well, report. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Priti, how is it uh, going in Assam? All good. It's going. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get to the bizarre news segment already. So this week we've decided to dedicate uh, the bizarre news section uh, to the one and only Suresh Chavanke and his Sudarshan TV. Uh, listeners, in case you don't know him, let me do the honor. Suresh Chavanke is the chairman and editor-in-chief of Sudarshan News. He is a man who has uh, actually taken it upon himself to shove TV news to new depths every day. And uh, Ayush, uh, in his uh, recent piece, very aptly called him the 12th man of the squad of anchors competing to eliminate sense and sobriety from Indian TV news channels. Very uh, nicely put, Ayush. Thank you. I, first, I thought, <laughs> who's, this elo- who's this author who's so eloquent? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, oh, he, yeah. He, he is that, you know, and yeah. actually he's not even, it's a great disservice to even say that he's taking Indian news to such uh, roaring depths, mm-hmm. because if, if his channel has been around for 10, uh, 10 years, I think, and he, no one knew him before uh, 1716, but now he's become, of course, patronized by the establishment and he's been given compliments by union ministers. So I think uh, we have to say he's a journalist now, what can we do? Uh, so, uh, listeners, if you want to n- get to know this man better, you should really check out Atul Chaurasia's interview with him from last year. So, as you all know, recently, Mr. Suresh Chavanke gained national recognition for his hatred-ridden content after after News Laundry actually called him uh, called out his advertisers, which included Amul. So, this particular show was called UPSC Jihad and was uh, he was propagating this conspiracy theory about Muslims, also known as jihadis in Chavanke's world, um, Muslims infiltrating the civil services in India. And, uh, you know, after that, he put out a promo of this on Twitter and he was uh, called out on social media, after which Delhi High Court put a stay order on the show. But of course, the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting, which we all know is a great supporter of press freedom, gave the show clearance to broadcast. Now, our poor Ayush here had to watch the show. Uh, Ayush, why don't you tell us about this uh, theory of Mr. Chavanke? You know, uh, when he first uh, was going to do this show, he's, I think it was supposed to be a single episode, but after the stay order, and once he realized that the ministry would ultimately give him a clearance, he saw the business and uh, the, when the show first appeared, he said that now he'll be doing 10 episodes. So it's, it was not just one show, but uh, I think by the time the Supreme Court put a stay order, that is yesterday, he'd already done four. And it's the same. Usually the whole show was based on the social media rumor. 
uh, you know that uh, muslims are uh, somehow getting advantage in the in the civil services exams and there are coaching institutes and politicians and foreign funding involved to make all of this happen and he, the way he framed it when the show began he first worshiped ganesh then he oh, on the show yeah 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 he he did a like a prayer before a digital ganesh then he did a offering to baba saheb ambedkar then he did a, gave tribute to shivaji so and the the way it was framed was that because muslims are taking over upsc the ones who are getting uh, disadvantage are the dalits so i am pro dalit you know i am an ambedkar right <laughs> it was it was a, a one, one hour show and it was complete nonsense and the way he was putting it is these are just questions people have been asking you know no one can stop others from asking questions i am not defaming muslims i am just asking what people have in mind and he said the prime minister is watching my show and <laughs> Of course. What did uh, Piyush Goyal? Uh, what did he say about him, Ayush? He said that he's a uh, he's someone who's made his place in the world of news. You know, honorable man. Right. And uh, actually, uh, you were, uh, so this is all based on this conspiracy theory is based on the fact that a lot of Muslim uh, candidates have cleared the UPSC exams, right? Yeah, I mean, in the recent years, the numbers been going up. You know, and uh, and it's not going up. as uh, as well as it should so if there were 27 this year you would have 40 you know but he what, what the the thing about data is that he could that then show that to be from 27 to 40 is what you know uh, i think that's almost uh, more than 25% so he'll say 40% rise in muslims so absurd so these are the little three he had these graphs there were no sources cited for these graphs and but yeah the main grievance seemed to be the fact that there are more muslims even in the modi's rule <laughs> right no and i mean it's uh, i think it's really important to note that there was uh, i'm forgetting uh, where this data came from but muslims are supposed to be the most disadvantaged community right uh, even behind dalits like when it comes to education and stuff like that right So yeah, this, yeah, yeah. There was a yeah. Sachar commission that was set up yeah, under exactly. UPA two, yes, which yes. was most comprehensively showed yeah. that uh, with the Muslim community is very economically, not just economically but socially backward. One of the people in the Sachar commission was uh, Sayyid Zafar Mahmood, who now runs the Zakat Foundation, which you know uh, does uh, good work among the Muslim community. They take charitable, they they are charitable organization, but they help students, it it uh, train them and coach them and. help them to crack the civil services exam he was a particular uh, target of chawanke manmohan singh was a particular target so actually there, there was this uh, print uh, report from today actually rss backed ias institute has been quietly grooming nationalist civil servants since 1986 and this is called samkalp foundation which is got a success rate of 61% and it has very close ties with the rss exactly and i mean and it's fine you know for organizations to train people and uh, try to put that uh, i mean for example in the united states there are organizations i think like the templeton foundation which 
just grooms lawyers or people who are in law school with conservative values and make sure that they become judges in the highest courts of the land. So in a democratic society, you have these interest groups, which is fine. But then no one would say RSS is here hatching a conspiracy. Exactly. You know, you you crack the you crack the services civil services on your own merit. Of course, there is a margin of uh, discrimination. But I think Muslims are a, a more or less five percent of the total uh, people who clear it, which is still not representative of their total population, which is fifteen percent. Or wait, not fifteen, nineteen percent in India. Right. Um, so, Ayush, uh, can you? I mean, the whole thing was so bizarre because uh, you know, after uh, how did the INB Ministry cure this kind of uh, you know content? to go out and then uh, the Supreme Court, uh, please tell our listeners a little more about what the Supreme Court said also. Well, you know, the there are these vague laws that were formed in the 1990s when television was just coming up in India, especially news. And there was, uh, there was one law which said that there are certain codes that all channels must abide by. And these codes were given out in the television, cable television network rules, 94. So these are like very outdated 26 year old rules. And some of them are quite lame. So if anyone does any program that offends against taste and decency, you can be taken off. But uh, there are some serious ones also, which one can agree with. For example, you cannot attack religions or communities with visuals or words that are contemptuous of uh, religious groups and promote communal attitudes. Uh, There is uh, one about uh, not having visuals or words which reflect a slandering a snobbish attitude and portrayal of ethnic, linguistic, and regional groups. So these are, one can say, we can have a consensus that these are, okay, fairly agreeable rules. And the ministry said, asked uh, Chavanke to not flout any of these. And Chavanke told them that, yes, our program is not flouting any. Now, the piece I did, uh, you know, I've explained how they flouted at least five of these 15 codes. Can you can you tell us some, like, number one is just the picture that is carried in the story itself of this uh, man with a beard and a uh, skull cap, you know, yeah. running a race. At, at, at three points in the program, they try to visualize Muslims. And all of all the times these pictures and visualizations had long people, the, the apparently Muslim male had a long beard, a crooked nose, uh, you know, turban. And the, one, the most uh, weird one was, it's so creepy, was when he was given an example of how UPSC is a race. So first he showed a video of uh, Usain Bolt winning the 2012 Olympics in China. And then he put a man with a skull cap and a beard over Usain Bolt's body. Oh my God. It was a very uh, a shoddy job. And you know, people at Sudarshan News, actually, if you become a reporter at Sudarshan News, you're paid something like, you know, poor guys are paid 5,000 rupees a month. I know this because I've talked to them, spoken to them. So these are the kind of team he has. And if you see his own office, it's so glitzy and he has an app, uh, he has a MacBook Air. So clearly he's the concentration of wealth and power. But the Supreme Court yesterday, when it was hearing, the, I think Justice Chandrachud uh, was hearing a petition filed by seven bureaucrats, former bureaucrats, who had laid down very lucidly the, how this constituted hate speech and not did not constitute free speech. And Chandrachud, at, at no point in the order did I particularly see any prayer about the 
court putting a stay order on the show but chandrachud in the end the whole actually the whole bench decided that there should be a stay order and they said that this is a rapid this is insidious you cannot be maligning communities you cannot be maligning our good institutions like jamia in this fashion and <laughs> their own counsel argued that this is in uh, investigative journalism and national security which which made me shoot myself <laughs> you know you should see the injury <laughs> but <laughs> it was ridiculous but uh, fortunately the court you know uh, weighed on the right side and now the there's a stay order and mr chavanke is not happy uh, he does not his relationship with the nyay palika as he says has seems to be strained right thank you zombie ayush who's <laughs> back from the dead <laughs> All right so listeners before we get to the next report uh, I want to tell all the new listeners about News Laundry we are a 100% ad free news platform and we need your support to stay afloat so please subscribe to us and pay to keep news free you can go to our website newslaundry.com and hit that subscribe button on the top right corner of the website it's only 300 rupees a month so come on be generous And if you're listening to us on uh, podcast apps like Stitcher or iTunes, remember we have a website www.newslaundry.com. You can log on and check out the other cool stuff that we do, like ground reports, interviews, satire, which might interest you. Yes. Uh. So, listeners, uh, as you all can see, if you've been following TV news, our news cycle is consumed by Ria Kangana. Sushant Singh Rajput. Actually, Sushant Singh Rajput ko to people have forgotten now. Now Kangana has replaced him, right? And um, so while all of this is happening, there is a huge ecological and humanitarian crisis that is unfolding in our country in Assam, specifically in Bagjan. At the end of May this year, this village called Bagjan, it saw this horrific oil spill, oil and gas spill, that occurred because of a bad, failing pressure system in an oil well, which is run by. government owned oil india limited right so after two weeks of the gas leaking you know which uh, they couldn't control it finally caught fire and uh, today almost 100 days later the fire still rages on all efforts to stop the fire have failed two firefighters have died in the process you know homes have been destroyed thousands of villagers have been relocated to these makeshift relief camps you know and oil and tea are the two major issues for the assamese people right it is the backbone of the state's economy but how much of a stay how how much of a say sorry uh, do people actually have about their own land you know even now the voices of people who are suffering the direct impact of this disaster is barely being heard so supriti our reporter here she she is in assam and she visited bagjan and the relief camps uh and in her report she's highlighted the trauma of the people who've been farming on that land for hundreds of years uh, right and so supriti first of all tell me uh i mean i know that you stay in assam and uh, from all the pictures that you were sending us uh, you know uh, we know that you could see the fire uh, from your uh, place which is about 40 kilometers away from bagjan right yes Uh, but tell me what it felt like physically you know going close to that fire like what was that experience like right so uh, i ended up uh, being just a few meters in front of the fire like we weren't actually allowed to they weren't allowing anyone to actually go close to it they had multiple checkpoints uh, before like the actual blow outside but uh, you know we managed to uh, i managed to get there and uh, i think i was there for about 8 to 10 minutes not more than that 
and by the end i had to like i had to leave because i was feeling nauseous and you know i had a like a really bad headache and because the smell gas you know is it's very very overwhelming and you know even more than that that like the flame itself the like the roar that uh, you know uh, it's make it made was it's making a noise you think yeah yeah there's a very wow. very very powerful like a very loud noise that it makes it uh, i think the only thing i can compare it to is like thunder but like continuous thunder you know so the people like as i mentioned the story also the people that was one of their major complaints like like on 9th when the fire actually uh, you know 9th of june uh, june June yeah 9th of June when the fire actually broke out uh, the people from Natungao they couldn't hear themselves like they couldn't speak they had to uh, speak over each other to like you know in order to hear themselves because it was so loud and uh, but it was the roar that actually you know that i like that really left uh, an impact on me right i can imagine so so pretty first of all tell us uh, all these uh, villagers who were living uh, close to the oil well you know uh, you wrote in your report how so many houses got burnt and so much property was destroyed right uh, where have they been moved how many of them have been moved and what are the conditions like in these uh, camps so initially when the fire broke out on uh, 9th uh there were about uh, 9000 uh, people who left their uh, homes from about 6 to 7 villages and uh, they were living in 14 uh, relief camps like across uh, you know so 9000 across uh, 14 relief camps but uh, after like a few months passed like at present there were uh, there are two relief camps which are essentially two schools uh, one is in bagjan and one is in guijan and uh, these two uh, between these two uh, relief like relief camps there are 3000 people who are you know who are uh, living there and the condition of the relief camp so i went to the one in guijan which uh, houses uh, the residents of natungao now it's so it's really so the school in itself is quite small and uh, it's housing close to you know at least 1000 people and uh, you know it's i mean they've tried they've tried i think their best to make it make do but if you live like after you live there for four months now close to four months it's obviously not mm-hmm. enough and it's deteriorating like you know conditions are deteriorating by the day and uh, the people obviously are not happy and they want to go home and they want a more permanent uh, you know solution right right so 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 pretty first of all tell me what was uh, the immediate response from first of all uh, first of all oil right oil india yeah. limited the state government and the center just tell me how these three have responded so as you know uh, oil is um, very intrinsically linked to you know the people of like it's a very the people of assam hold it to an almost sentimental uh, like degree like is if the life of oil and the life of the people of assam is very interlinked so it has a very sentimental feeling that uh, you know it exists between the two oil they obviously they acknowledged that there was a problem and you know they released an interim uh, compensation to the people as well and even there were uh, you know the state government and uh, there were ministers from the union from the center who uh, visited the uh, visited bagjan and they told them that we would uh, you know that they would be compensated and they they would be rehabilitated but the issue arises where like you know there's no um, they haven't been told about any 
end goal. Like there isn't any assurity as to when any of this will happen. There's a sense of, you know, there's no uh, assurity given to the people. So that's where the problem is. Right. So, so pretty. what, I mean, uh, since you went there and you saw, what could you see in front of your eyes in terms of like, you know, how it has impacted the area around physically, you know, the fire? So, uh, I think the toll that the blowout uh, had was like on two levels as such. One was obviously the environmental toll that it's taken on, uh, you know, so as I mentioned, uh, uh, Maguri Bill is what, uh, you know, it's a wetland, which is just about 500 meters from uh, the actual blowout site. And uh, it's an area that's like, you know, uh, very rich in um, migratory birds come there every year. And, you know, it's rich in fish and people depend on, uh, you know, on it as a source of like, you know, income. Right. So uh, the bill I saw, the wetland was, it was dead. Like there was literally no life. There were boats and there was like, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, fishing nets that were just abandoned on the sides. And there were no, so the villagers also told me that, you know, at this time of year, there are tons of migratory birds that come and the, the wetland is absolutely covered with them, but there was nothing there. And I could also see, you know, the, uh, there, was, there was oil, uh, you know, condensate on, like, you know, on the water. And uh, yeah, so the environmental toll is very easy to see. And the, like, you know, the villagers also showed me, uh, you know, pictures of the toll that um, the blowout had on their crops and on their animals. It had a huge impact. And with, so Bagjan still, like, you know, you can see the impact very clearly in the sense that there are uh, houses that were completely gutted and the fire of, like, directly affected, like, you know, burned their fields. But in a place like Notungao, where, uh, you know, uh, they were impacted by the oil condensate. So uh, the effects of that have been washed away by the floods. So this village has had floods. Like now, I think uh, the village has had flood water come in about four to five times is what they said. So the actual, um, you know, impact, you can't really see it now. Uh, Supriti, another, uh, you know, large part of Assam's economy is dependent on tea, right? And there are uh, uh, quite a few tea gardens around uh, the area of Bagjan. And uh, the pictures in your report, by the way, I must say, listeners, please do check out uh, Supriti's report, not just for the report in itself, but also the photographs that she's taken. They're beautiful. I mean, it's sad to say beautiful, but they are. <laughs> Right. So one of the pictures, Supriti, was of tea bushes, right, with the oil residue on them. Uh, now, it's obviously, you know, going to impact uh, the industry. Have you had have you had a word with anybody from the industry and how this is going to affect them? Right. So uh, the, you know, tea garden owners that I spoke to who were affected directly were, you know, people from Natungao itself. And uh, what they, like from the pictures that they showed me and the testimonies that they gave, it was like, you know, the tea leaves were like, you know, uh, they were burning up. So, and the yield for this year has been obviously very low. And they believe that the yield will continue to be low and of low quality for the next few years. And uh, it's not only the leaves that have been directly affected, it's the soil as well, because of the condensation, you know, affected the soil and which will you know, see such a sensitive crop to grow. And uh, yeah, it's going to, um, there are going to be long-term repercussions of this. 
right right and uh, supriti you also uh, so of course you know uh, villagers have been uh, protesting against uh, you know the blow, uh, against what has happened and uh, the uh, of course the state's response or lack of response actually adequate response right in fact um, i was just uh, hearing that she is an anthropologist dolly kikon she was talking about the blowout and uh, she was talking about how something is be something is happening to a farmer's paddy field like it's burning or whatever is happening it has it has impacted his crops and he has no say in what is being done to his land so of course you know people are protesting and you met some of them uh, can you tell us uh, tell us a little bit uh, about your conversations yeah so the day that i'd gone to guijan to meet the farm uh, the people affected the the president of mongolia were actually uh, staging a protest on that day uh, they were blocking they had been blocking a bridge for two days by till then from oil uh, you know oil india employees and this road was one of two that actually lead to the blow outside and their main uh, you know grievances was like one of them obviously was you know no clarity on uh, rehabilitation and the second the, the second and what i felt from my interaction was more uh, you know weighing was that was weighing heavier on their minds was that of negligence not only in terms of you know the uh, negligence as to how this could even happen but also no uh, you know information being given to the people who are most affected like uh, they don't know like as i said i had spoken to oil india and i had spoken to the uh, you know uh, district administration and both of them while they told me that nothungao is included in the survey that's being conducted to assess the damage the people themselves weren't sure whether they were included or not so you know there's this uh, huge gap in uh, you know information flow and the people themselves aren't aware like you know of their own future and their own Uh, the uh, measures being taken also supriti another uh, very important question is is there a maybe like a team from the central government or the state government or a bunch of environmental experts who are there carrying out uh, research about how the the environmental damage that has happened yeah so uh, there is a uh, there is a team that uh, you know uh, uh, national green tribunal set up a team of experts who are looking into the damages who are looking into uh, you know reviving the fields and uh, like you know reversing the and if there's any way to reverse the uh, damage that's done and they're supposed to present a report on the on the 3rd of november uh, if i'm not wrong yeah 3rd of november so uh, the, there is a ongoing process oil india themselves like you know uh, this representative that i spoke to he told me that they've uh, already you know that at the end of the process of bio remediation which is like uh, you know uh, introducing microbes to break down pollutants in the field so they're they, they're also you know put doing there are processes in place that are being uh, you know done to mitigate the damage but yeah the long term if uh, impact we'll only know after the assessment is complete and the report is published yeah so uh, people have lost their homes they've been displaced from their homes their uh, you know years and years of uh, hard work on their farmland has been taken away just like that and on top of that they also so unhappy about the help or the lack of help uh you know from the authorities in charge 
so that is the that is the story that supriti has written and you must read it in detail it's on our website newslaundry.com all right uh, so moving on to our next report uh, which was uh, written by ayush former jnu student and human rights activist umar khalid he was arrested by the special cell of the delhi police uh, after 11 hours of questioning on 13th of september and uh, he will remain in custody for 10 days now he is alleged to have been one of the main uh, conspirators in the riots that broke out in northeast delhi between 23rd to 26th february this year the fir says and i'm quoting uh, khalid allegedly gave provocative speeches at two different places and appealed to the citizens to come out on the streets and block the roads during the visit of us president donald trump to spread propaganda at the international level about how minorities in india are being persecuted so this theory itself of the delhi police was refuted by the quint uh, a while ago right ayush yeah i mean uh, it was just sloppy because they said january 8th was the day he was planning for trump's visit when the first announcement comes like 5 days later exactly yes so there was no public information about trump's visit till 12th of january so how did he hatch this conspiracy on 8th of january with tahir husain who also who is the other co accused right yeah now uh, delhi police has claimed to have extracted 40 gb or 11 lakh pages of data from umar khalid's uh, mobile phone and they want to question him about it even uh, so uh, listeners are reporters ayush and basant uh, those who of you who follow news laundry you'll know they've been consistently following the developments in the delhi riots case and uh, they've pen down several reports in depth ground reports uh, for our news laundry sena series uh, sena series is a news laundry sena series is an initiative by news laundry that allows readers like you to fund the stories that you want to hear so you should check out that section on our website now uh, ayushan basan through their investigation of the delhi police's probe into the riots found not just one but many 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 loopholes in delhi police's investigation now umar khalid actually uh, had spoken to ayush just a few days before his arrest right ayush yes and uh, it was quite clear that he saw it coming actually anyone uh, i mean it was sort of expected right ayush what did you think yeah, well he's booked under the uaps in april so it was imminent that he would be arrested so ayush tell us uh, more about your uh, interaction with him when I- spoke to him it a couple of weeks weeks before that he had been uh, the first interrogation had happened and they taken his phone away so when i spoke to him uh, it was particularly hard to get his number and we spoke on a uh, not only mainstream uh, messaging apps but not on different more alternative ones and we had a call over that because of course he was also not feeling safe about um, having a regular call Mm. so when we spoke we spoke over two days and two conversations anywhere about 30 to 40 minutes mm. and the he was very eager to talk and because what had been happening that month this is late august is that a slew of media reports had come out which had said that umar khalid was this monster who was not only planning riots more than a month before it happened but was giving tahir husain the instruction to put bottles on his terrace and he was telling new students that they shouldn't worry about their riot planning because he has pfi links so he'll get them the money 
so in all these reports which most of them appeared on z news and with the report on that separately omar was always mentioned so he knew as he told me that it was this was building up to something it was these conversations i think only one third of these conversations that was on record which i put it in the interview right right i mean actually just today i think indian express published a report uh, um, speaking to his mother and his sisters right Very about good how report. they were so, yeah about how they were preparing for it so ayush uh, uh, what are the charges what uh, can you uh, elaborate a little bit about the exact charges on umar khalid apart from this the specific ones he is booked under the arms act right he's booked under sedition uh, murder attempt to murder rioting conspiracy in the indian penal code the ipc and over everything else he's also booked under the anti terror law that is the uh, uapa which as we know couple of months before the protests broke out there was a whole you know so, sort of a conversation about how it violated the very law of natural justice which is said that if a person is accused of being a terrorist it's incumbent about that person to prove that he is not one instead of the regime uh, proving him a terrorist in the first place you know, while while it's what what is known as a lo- first logical fallacy you know the burden of proof and so that that was the law he's been booked under and as we've seen even the people who do get bail under uapa they remain in prison uh, as devangana kalita being a case in point so these were the the, the whole slew of charges spanning across uapa the arms act and the ipc so um are you sh- uh, murder charges also against him yeah because the writing led to the death of uh, 53 people so not only attempt to murder but also murder so this whole thing i mean through your uh, report and basan's report the thing that really stands out is how it's being done so blatantly like accusing muslims of murdering muslims in what was re- clearly a communal riot right yeah and um, i mean the i think the f1 fir they filed a supplementary charge sheet under last week huh. which is fir 50 uh that's to do with the death of one uh, a muslim young my young muslim man hmm. after the riots broke out and they've uh, arrested and named a lot of anti ca protesters so just not just uh, muslim killing muslims but anti ca protesters killing their own fellow protesters you know that's the extent of uh, the their imagination or the lack of it but yes it is very blatant and we they uh, if you just go through news reports or the chart sheets trying to find something substantial that they have on umar why they think that he was involved you'll find nothing it's they mentioned that he made speeches but they don't specify which speech right and because when they do specify it in as in other cases then it will be played in court and then the court will realize that this is nothing but parallelly what they do which is sinister is they made one video uh, viral that one speech he gave on 17th february or january in amravati in which he's saying he will fight hate with love and we won't be violent and you know he's accusing modi of being violating mahatma gandhi's principles and so they are not saying that is the speech but then if, what people would know is that that's the speech but they've trimmed that and it's been very cleanly cut and of course if you say umar khalid giving insightful speech people will already believe it even before the vote yeah exactly exactly they'll already form uh, this opinion yeah so it's it's it is what uh, umar says in the interview that this is a narrative based investigation they don't have anything on him but uh, there is these uh, vague very vague charges compounded by 
you know parallel propaganda which is used to uh, corner him so uh, ayush since you know he told you that he was sort of expecting it right how uh, did he tell you um, more about that like how was he mentally preparing for it and uh, you know was did he seem positive or uh... well he seemed he did not uh, seem weak at any point he did not seem nervous i think uh, and not this is the second time he's been getting into trouble i think 2016 he had been charged with sedition and he was gen- when he was a student at jnu so i think he's just almost used to the whole fracas around him and the whole frenzy and hysteria around him there was a assassination attempt on him also so um, he, he said in a very matter of fact way that i have been mentally prepared to go to jail since uh, march and april and the first sign of this was when amit malviya and jinder bagga these uh, bjp online spokesperson tweeted a video of him giving that amravati speech on march 2nd and just a day after they tweeted that speech the bjp people there's a report in times of india saying that the intelligence agency uh, were now looking into that video so you know they knew where the cues were coming from and he was also smart enough he's smart enough to know what's going on and there's a whole media campaign against him so well, he he seemed to be someone who had reconciled with the fact that he will be uh, thrown into prison now sooner or later but even i was surprised that they took uh, that took so long to do put him in september everyone else went inside all these jamia students these students went inside in april and may so he's been rather late but of course i think that's uh, that depends on what the context is the context is at the right chart sheet into the conspiracy case the the alpur conspiracy case in the northeast delhi riots will be filed today or tomorrow like a build up to that and trying to impact that uh, whole uh, prevailing public opinion at this point right right and uh, the most shocking and bizarre is the 11 lakh pages what what is that are you like why i mean how is this uh, going to affect the investigation Uh, you know i think uh, um, i don't believe them when they say 11 lakh pages but what it's what it's going to be is this like bhima koregaon which even umar said it's going to be like where the police will just keep on asking for more time and usme hi 6 7 mahine nikal jayenge probably a year or two sudha bardwaj has been in jail for two years and the whole a uh, frenzy around her started with some letter she wrote against modi but that letter was never produced in court so i mean it's this is uh, the stilt of this entire uh, episode against umar the stilt rests on propaganda so and he'll be bedeviled and i'm sure we'll see these confessions by umar khaled that he planned the riots and more politicians will come into the whole fold and you know with every uh chachi that's filed the whole circle keeps starts getting bigger so it's first it's the residents of northeast delhi then there are du students now there's yogendra yadav and rahul roy people in civil society and when i talked to umar he said he explained this if you read it in the piece that there are three tiers that they are assaulting and the bottom of the tier is the residents who've had it worst but the ultimate plan seems to be to dismantle the civil society that exists in delhi which is i think the most powerful civil society in any urban metropolis in this country right right i mean he did you know uh, in your report you've uh, quoted him saying that today tomorrow or a year later i will come out of this right which seems quite hopeful but at the same time he himself is talking about bima koregaon and we know i mean you just mentioned how uh, sudha bhardwaj and others are still in jail right so how long i mean do you think well if if they really want uh, if it really comes down to the process being the punishment then uh, he will be in for uh, 
long period of time until unless there is some miraculous judicial intervention which uh, and but i don't think that will be the case because even in bhima koregaon this was a simple protest and i don't know if, if people died during that i don't think anyone died um but this is a riot case and 653 deaths and that too you know it was rather a modi was left rather red faced because trump was here so i think they'll go after him with everything you know hammer and tongs but then also at the same time like you mentioned uh, you know there's nothing uh, you know substantial yeah. against him until unless in these 40 gbs of data we find they finally crack something which obviously they might just you know i mean if i if someone takes my phone i can be put under uapa <laughs> because the the kind of things this regime considers sacrilegious i've done everything i take all the boxes very true <laughs> so it's i mean 59 grams of marijuana and ria chopras ayush <laughs> yeah so uh, by their standards it's anything yeah. it's everyone right right yeah. So Ayush uh, to conclude uh, this conversation you know just to give our listeners something to uh, you know some food for thought if you had to point out three biggest loopholes in the investigation with examples from your previous report what would those be okay first one is that the most solid evidence uh, the delhi police can produce in the riots is forensic evidence because uh, fact or no fact narrative no narrative science doesn't lie and until unless they of course you know they um, by hook or by crook they fix the investigators themselves but in the riot chart sheet uh, they cited that they were arrested someone because there is good evidence that this person were there or he had the gun who shot muslim guy shot the other muslim guy with a gun mm-hmm. and that this will be proved in the forensic report now all the chart sheets say that we'll prove this but uh, we don't have the report now so later we'll file a supplementary chart sheet and later we'll uh, tell you how we can prove this so they don't have any forensic evidence to show right they don't have any weapons to show they haven't found the guns they haven't found the swords in half the cases on all cases that we investigated for example so that's the biggest loophole right there second would be i think the fact that the videos that they've used when these protests are going on and we when we would go to cover them there will be always policemen you know filming everything so they have videos of everything but when they say that one person was giving speech promos- promoting secessionist motives among an audience then they have the video of that but they can never produce it, produce it in court because they know it's not true and so the videos they use uh, they won't produce they, they will never go in court they don't have anything to prove on that front and they'll use they've used to arrest innocent people they've used these cctv footages you know very selectively which will i think also be uh, so, so for example in one of the investigation we showed that the cctv would focused on hindu rioters they didn't find the data from that because citing some problems right <laughs> but when muslims from a locality came out to defend themselves they found the cctv footage of those muslims and they became the rioters of course so that's the second and third would be the fact that most of the investigation rests on these disclosure statements these statements that are made in police custody which are not legally admissible but if they want to get it legally uh, make it legally admissible they have to get a magistrate in the presence of uh, when that uh, confession takes place which they can also do easily you know that that happens all the time but uh, those statements in themselves won't prove much because they don't have enough weight uh, in themselves you have to show forensic and video evidence so these are the three biggest loopholes right so it was one of these disclosure statements it's uh, right where uh, yogendra yadav and sitaram yachuri uh, were named right 
yeah disclosure statements and to call them confession is uh, is it not is not true because they are not confession legally exactly exactly and and also like uh, those uh, those reports that you and uh, basan did uh, you know those witness statements uh, you actually went and met those uh, witnesses and they said they plainly straightforward said it's all a lie we never said stuff like this yeah but they they can be pressured you know i mean yeah, that, that can yeah, happen yeah no i remember you when we were discussing that report uh, this was one of your concerns when this report came out you were worried that you know uh, these people now since uh, you know this report is out they might be pressurized because you know in during the sorabuddin murder case uh, in which amit shah is implicated i think uh, 52 of the 57 witnesses if i remember correctly were turned hostile so i mean 52 or 57 is the 96 97% of them so the the modus operandi remains the same then we'll expect that to happen but yeah that those things are that can be done easily all right thank you so much ayush uh, that uh, i i'm sure that gave me a lot of clarity and that gave our listeners a lot of clarity about what is going on mm. so that brings us to the end of the conversation today uh, we shall finish off with some recommendations Ayush, you go first. Um, yeah, I have two pieces to recommend. One is on News Laundry by Ananda Chakravarti, who wrote a very well-written and educative piece on how Republic Bharat became the number one Hindi channel in uh, in the TRP race, and it just gives you a lot of background and uh, information on how TRP system works. So I think that would be one. The other piece would be this uh, article called "A Second Chance." It's rather than an essay. that appeared in the new york review of books which talks about how a new yorker journalist in the 90s were expect to present themselves to the world and how that got him to trouble <laughs> in a court case because uh, one of the subjects he interviewed uh, you know turned on him it's a very entertaining piece and uh, gives you a very funny glimpse into the world of writers so it's called a second chance i'll definitely read it yeah all right thank you ayush uh, so priti what about you Uh, so i would like to recommend the very popular documentary uh, the social dilemma which is on uh, netflix so it's a documentary that uh, you know essentially explores how addiction is a feature of social media platforms and like manipulation of uh, human behavior for profit is the true like you know end goal of these platforms yeah it's available on netflix and i would highly recommend it For yeah, the- I've been I've been stalling watching it because I'm so scared because I know people who watched it and they uh you know quit all they shut down all their social media accounts. It's crazy. Like I I watched it. It's insane. It's insanely well done. Sure, I'll definitely check it out. All right. Thank you, Supriti. Thanks, Nita. Uh, so my recommendation this week is, of course, I've uh, recommended it many times, but I would really like all our listeners, those who've not uh, read Ayushan Basant's um, NL Sena series on the Delhi riot, Delhi police's investigation into the Delhi riots, please, please do read it. You know they've taken like uh, one case, like for each report, like for example, the murder of Maru Fali, and they've like really broken it down for you and pointed out all the. problems with the investigation uh, so you guys should totally uh, read those and uh, my second second recommendation is this uh, piece on lithub it is called civility and so called objectivity is no way to contain a plague of lies and it's written by this writer called siri haswet 
and the piece is uh, basically about how easily americans have been you know uh, mesmerized by trump's strange abnormal rhetoric and uh, she, very interestingly she uh, starts with this quote that i'm sure will resonate with all of us at a time like this uh, it's by this linguist called uh, victor klemperer who uh, wrote about the language of the third reich and uh, he says and i'm quoting nazism permeated the flesh and blood of the german people through single words idioms and sentence structures which were imposed upon them in a million repetitions and taken on board mechanically and unconsciously so the piece is about you know how words especially when consistently repeated not just affect our conscious but also our subconscious and you know how mainstream media plays a major role in um, you know doing this so yeah that is my recommendation all right listeners if you liked what you heard please do rate our podcast on itunes or whatever platform you tuned into we also have a bunch of other podcasts like hafta and awful and awesome better the rating more the reach and that means more subscribers and that in turn means better content and if you enjoy listening to our podcast please 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 share it among your family your friends so that we can reach uh, more listeners like yourself yes Also, listeners, please do write to us at contact at newslaundry dot com with reporters without orders in the subject line. We're very eager to your, uh, hear your feedback, and uh, please uh, send us your critical feedback. Also, we, uh, you know, you're more than welcome to. And um, you can also leave your comments on Twitter or our Instagram handle or our Facebook page. And with that, this podcast is adjourned. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs, and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.